This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. I want to talk with you for a couple of minutes about the Good Shepherd. We're going to start in John 10. In fact, let me just read here some of this to whet your appetite. And it starts uh, verse 1, chapter 10. Truly, truly, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So by way of introduction, I want just to observe a few things here. Um, You know, Jesus is describing himself as a good shepherd. He talks about his sheep knowing his voice or listening to his voice. Uh, He warns them of predators, spiritual predators, who come to steal, kill, and destroy. These would be men and women who do not have the sheep's welfare at heart. He tells his followers that he will lay down his life for the sheep. It's once here at the very end of that passage, but he says it two more times in the following about six, seven verses. He talks about laying down his life for the sheep. So a question for you. If you could know God personally, would you want to? I couldn't tell you how many times I've asked that question of students and faculty. And every now and again, someone will say, no, I don't think I would. And it doesn't happen often, but when it does, It is shocking to me. It shocks me every time. I find myself in the inside just sitting there saying, really? Really? But you know, it could be that some men and women just have a distorted picture of what God, the good shepherd, is really like. They, they don't see him as being an attractive personality. They don't see him as being someone who is life-giving. You know, John 10 is a great story. It's very encouraging. 
and it follows John 9. Um, and I want to remind you that, you know, these great little chapter numbers and the verse numbers are uh, add-ons. You know, when John was writing, he didn't, sorry, he didn't uh, put in chapter and verse numbers. Uh, that was added centuries later as a help to navigate, you know, how we could find our way here, and it is very helpful. But it can be distracting, and it can kind of cover over the fact that this in John 10 follows on the heels of another story. And I want to take you there. So let's look for a minute at John chapter 9. And in this story, we're going to see a real clear picture of what the good shepherd is not like. Okay? And what's happened here is Jesus has healed a man who was blind, who was born blind, and now he sees. So here's what unfolds, starting here in verse 6 of uh, chapter 9. So Jesus, he spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Skip down to verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Well, his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, well, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So I want to talk for a minute with you about these religious leaders 
to answer the question, what is it they want? What, what do they want from this passage? What do we see here? Well, I think the first thing they want is they want for this miracle to be a lie. <laughs> they would love for this to not be true. They, they want to discredit Jesus and Jesus' influence with the masses. It's huge and it's growing. He's becoming more and more influential and they want that to stop. Now, there are at least a couple of reasons that this is important to them. Uh, one is that they fear losing control of the crowds. They do not want riots. They do not want huge demonstrations because their power, their influence, is a gift to them from the Romans who rule here. And if they can't keep the people under control, they're not doing the very thing that Rome had allowed, is allowing or has them in place to do. They, their own position is threatened. The people will listen to and follow Jesus. They, they fear that. They don't want to lose control. They don't want to lose influence. So it, it boils down to they are afraid they will lose their power and influence. They're afraid they'll lose their power and influence. Number two here, they don't want to learn the truth. Instead, they want to control the story. So there are lots of questions that are asked here in chapter 9. They're asking questions of the parents. They're asking questions of this man who now sees. But the questions aren't really for information. Um, I love this one question. Is this your son who you say was born blind? <laughs> there's, there's really an accusation here. Uh, they're not looking for information. They're accusing and they've created an environment of fear. Remember how it said that the parents, you know, they're kind of sidestepping going, uh, oh, he's of age, ask him. Uh, yeah, it's our son. Uh, we don't know how it happened. They're like trying to make distance between them, these Pharisees, and their questions because they're afraid. So these religious leaders have created an environment of fear and accusations. You know, when it says that they would put people out of the synagogue who would confess Jesus as Christ, it means excommunication. It means removal from community. It means removal from business activity. It's to be made an outsider. And this is a place, a culture, and a time where you depended, your very life depended on cooperation and community and working together. It was a huge threat. Third idea here, they want to make their own future secure and comfortable. So they're looking at ways of protecting themselves. And then the, the fourth idea, they want to be looked up to. Um, they were in a privileged position. They had authority that was given to them by the Romans or allowed to them by the Romans. And they didn't want to lose those things. They wanted to be in control. And we see in this passage a lot of pride and a real lack of being teachable. 
Those are fair descriptions of these religious leaders. But perhaps the most damning element here is they do not care. Um, I, I find it really shocking to me that in this passage, what you don't see, there's no celebration. Okay, so this man has always been blind. How many years has he sat in this place and people have walked past and he's called out and said, you know, would you help me? Would you give me a little something? And many people, I mean, you you know what this is like, many people kind of avert their glance as if they have something else that occupies them. And it helps them excuse not paying attention to this man or his need. You know, it's interesting that at first they didn't recognize him as being that man who was blind. And in fact, they thought, this has to be somebody else. So this guy who's been here, he's been around all their lives, and they know about him, but he's invisible. They they didn't engage with him. They couldn't describe what he looks like. They couldn't recognize him when he's standing before them. That is sad. It's shocking. It's a very twisted kind of leadership. You know, in our culture, leaders are the ones to be served. They're the ones to be pronouncing great pronouncements and controlling and making decisions. And yet Jesus, the good shepherd, turns leading on its head. Remember the passage where with the disciples, he goes person to person and he washes their feet. A lowly job, but it hadn't been done. It embarrassed the disciples. <laughs> this is wrong. This is so wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. You're a great rabbi. You're, you're our teacher. You're the Messiah. You shouldn't be doing this. And he says, you see what I've done. You should do likewise. If you want to be first, you should be last. If you want to be in the first place, you should be the servant of all. That's the kind of leader the good shepherd is. That is totally contrary to what we observe. So chapter 9 gives us a great picture of what the good shepherd is not. Let's look again at chapter 10 and answer the question, what does Jesus the good shepherd want? Well, first he wants you to be safe or secure. Uh, In chapter 10, verse 9, We read, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You think of this context of sheep, the shepherd who opens the door at the right time. He takes them to pasture. He takes them to water. He takes care of them. They go in, they go out. He protects, he saves them. The good shepherd wants you to be safe and secure. We got no hint of that in chapter 9. His authority comes from God. Uh, It says, to him the gatekeeper opens. 
Jesus is the real deal. He has legitimate access, legitimate authority given to him by the Father. And in contrast, the Pharisees here in chapter 9 are fighting to maintain uh, an appearance of being in control. They, they, they're grasping to hold on to authority. The second point here, Jesus wants you to know that he knows you. Verses 12 through 14, we didn't read this in our first reading. I'll read it to you here. Jesus is speaking. He says, he was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. What a contrast to the Pharisees in chapter 9, who they couldn't even be sure this is the man that they pass every day on the street. But Jesus knows you. He knows his sheep. And his sheep know his voice, and they follow him. He's not a stranger. You are not invisible to the good shepherd. None of us are. Third point here, Jesus wants to lead you and for you to follow him. Uh, We read in verses three and four, Jesus speaking, he says, to him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. You know, this uh, passage is not the only one that draws on this imagery of, of a shepherd. And it was a great picture to pull up in this day and time. Because it's an agrarian culture. The idea of a shepherd or someone who cared for the sheep was very familiar. Uh, they, they knew shepherds. They'd been shepherds. They understood that life. And so Jesus picks up on this very familiar part of life and living, and he makes this comparison. He says, think of me as a good shepherd, as the good shepherd. But think, too, of another place, um, one that's familiar to many of us. It's Psalm 23. And it begins this way. Uh, King David wrote this. And it starts, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's a beautiful picture of care, of a shepherd taking the sheep and leading them to the place they need to be for the things that they need. The fourth idea here, Jesus wants to save you from harm and death and give you abundant life. It said that if anyone enters by Jesus, the door, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. In verse 9. I love this, this idea of the sheep knowing Jesus' voice. 
And then the next idea is that Jesus lays down his life for the sheep in verse 11. So contrary to the kind of leading that we saw from the Pharisees, you get this real picture that they expect to be served. They are great men. And they will not be troubled by this man, former beggar, now can see, formerly blind. They saw themselves as leaders and that their right was to be served. Whereas with Jesus as a servant leader, he turns that completely around. Jesus knows his own and his own know him. The sheep follow him. They know his voice. I mentioned um, at the beginning that we spent a number of years in Kiev, Ukraine. Um, We moved there in 1993, and the the wall had come down, the Iron Curtain. Um, The former Soviet Union had only recently become the former Soviet Union, and these different states now were independent. Um, It was a time of hyperinflation in Kiev, um, I've told you before, but I love this part of it, is any time we took dollars and we had to convert them to the local currency, I would tell Cindy, okay, don't bring any of that stuff home with you. Spend everything. It's the only time you can really say that. Um, but the problem was, is the next day, you know, the couponi, the uh, currency, would be worth a lot less than it was today. It's like, okay, if you're changing dollars, spend it all. Don't change too much money. Very unstable time. Uh, Bread lines. Sugar just disappears for weeks and months. Um, And we loved being there. But it was an interesting time in our family. We had just three kids at that time. Um, And our youngest, Ian, who I mentioned, uh, he was not yet quite two when we moved in. And so we lived in an apartment Uh, And we did not own a car in those years. We lived in the city, and so we depended on public transportation. So uh, we lived a good 15-minute walk from the metro station. Now picture three small children trying to get from your apartment to the metro to go do anything. It's like it takes forever. And so there's just no way that Ian is walking, okay? Ian is always being carried, and he's the only one of my kids that this is true of. It's, you know, any of you parents out there, you know the drill. It's like we want to go somewhere, you take them, you put them in the car seat, you strap them in. You get them out of the car seat, you put them in a stroller, you do that. And you repeat, and you do this routine over and over. And that would well describe probably our time with our other three. But with Ian, we couldn't do that. You couldn't take a stroller down the escalator, many, many stories, down to the metro. I mean, it just, you couldn't do it. So we used backpacks. We carried him. Uh, And I would say to Cindy, I I can't tell you how many times I would say this because it always shocked me. I would tell her, you know, I can carry him in this arm forever. Now, I'm right-handed, but I, I got tired. If I would carry him in my right arm, I couldn't last very long. But for some reason, I would hold him like this. He would sit here, and he would have the, his hand on the back of my neck. And this is just how we, we did life. It was a daily occurrence where uh, we're headed to the door, and he would go like this. Yeah. 
is he knew he belonged in my arm. It was never a question, would dad pick me up today? I'm afraid dad won't pick me up. No, he knew dad was going to pick him up. And he knew his place right there in the arm. And I just see so many parallels between that role that God allowed me to play with my son and his role with me. You know, I never really thought much about being carried uh, until recent years as I think more and more about Ian and my relationship with him. And um, the idea of being carried, I always think of some, you know, somebody with their arms out like this and a body laid across the arms. And, you know, I, I try to picture myself as being carried and I I feel, you know, you're looking up and you're kind of flailing around. You feel helpless. It's uncomfortable. I, I just, it just doesn't work for me. But this idea of being in my father's arm. My father, who, he knows where he's going. We're not about my agenda. We're about his agenda and his work. We're going to the places he intends to go today. And that's exactly where I want to be because the place isn't all that important. Ian really never knew where we were going, and he didn't care. What was important to him is who he was with. It was being with Dad. It was being in my arm. And he was happy there. All that instability in Kiev, uh, we were constantly encountering crazy stuff. Um, my oldest daughter has a great repulsion to beer, wine, anything. It's because she saw too many times men passed out, literally passed out on the street that we would walk by. She would smell that. She would see that. And so as, you know, these Americans walking around, you know, I'm trying not to freak out by every other thing because... You've got small children with you. You've got to kind of keep it together for the kids. And so Ian, being in my arm, he would feel what I felt. If I tensed up, I know he felt that. And if I'm relaxed, he was relaxed. Because if it's okay with dad, well, then everything's okay. We have a good shepherd who has perfect sovereign control over the universe. You can trust him. You can trust sitting in his arm. Ian would allow me to interpret reality for him. So as things are going on, I could talk to him about what I was seeing, what was important, what wasn't. And if you think about it, his perspective depended totally on being in my arm. He would look behind to where we'd been. He could look forward to where we were headed. But so much of it was his face was right here in my face. It was really an intimate thing. And I'll tell you, I grieved heavily the day that he just got too long, too big. Parents, you know what that's like? You're carrying him, and every step you get kicked right here. You know, you're, it's like, okay, we, we can't do this anymore. Dad can't do this anymore. I hated that. The good shepherd's arm never grows tired. He plans and he knows where he's going and where he's taking you. 
He's utterly trustworthy, and resting in his arm grows intimacy with him, and he thoroughly enjoys you. So what do you want? Well, first, I have a question for you. Are you one of God's sheep? In verse 9, Jesus said that if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Have you given up trying to somehow earn God's forgiveness or to make yourself worthy of him? Because it can't be done. Have you come to trust in Jesus' death alone for your sins and his resurrection as the only solution to your separation from God? If you want to talk more about that, I'd love to talk with you. I'm sure anyone among the elders, pastors, would be delighted to process that more with you. Another question, do you point other sheep toward the shepherd? You know, sheep are not smart. (laughs) They are not bright animals. They are not strong. And they are, in fact, virtually helpless. It's not that sheep are self-sufficient because without the shepherd to lead them to food and water, pasture, they would die. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. God calls his sheep to make disciples. That is followers, other followers of Jesus, other sheep. Friends and family that God's placed in our lives, they need the good shepherd. So do you point other sheep toward the shepherd? Do you experience God as your shepherd, as the good shepherd? Do you follow him as he leads you? And do you depend on him in the way a sheep has to utterly depend on the shepherd for protection and for life itself? And do you rest in the good shepherd? Do you rest in the crook of his arm? You know, shortly um, after we arrived in Kiev, um, so much of our ministry was done at night. Uh, We worked at Kiev State University, and the students had classes during the day, and then their dorm area was not near the campus at all. They had to take trams and stuff to get over there. So the students were really available at night. But Kiev was at a terrible crisis. Uh, There was no money for anything especially things like streetlights. So at night, if there was no moon or if it was overcast, it was, it was black. It was pitch black. And you did not want to be on unfamiliar streets in Kiev at night in the dark. Now, I know what you're thinking, that the key reason is because of crime. And that's not what I'm thinking about. Missing manhole covers. It's only funny until you find one. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. You'd be walking along and there's no manhole cover there. Or there's a sinkhole. You did not want to be walking on unfamiliar ground. 
on ground that isn't sure. But unlike the streets and sidewalks of Kiev, you and I can depend on Jesus. He is always faithful, always true to his word, always keeps his promise, always cares for us, his sheep. He is always worthy of our trust. He's always beautiful. He is always worthy of our lives. Trust him, and you will find him to be true. Pray with me. Oh, Lord, our good shepherd, you are so tender and caring, so kind and good. You are strong, faithful, and true. And we confess too often we buy into a false idea of who you are. Lord, thank you for your word. Would you please grow in us understanding that goes from our heads into our hearts and our experiences of who you really are, that we would believe you and trust you. Thank you that you're good. Thank you for laying down your life for the sheep. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world. 